And uh, it's been uh, really helpful, I think, to me, for me personally to think and, uh, about how the Reformation applies particularly to our world today. There's been a lot of uh, talk about how the history of the Reformation happened and the big theological themes that kind of came up in the Reformation. And we'll, we'll be talking about those tonight. But uh, I found it helpful to think about what our world uh, has about it that the Reformation still speaks to very clearly. Um, so that's what I'm going to be trying to do tonight. I'm not a historian, uh, so I won't be able to kind of paint you a kind of vivid picture of Martin Luther nailing his theses to the, the door of Wittenberg Castle Church or anything like that. Uh, that's a great thing to do if you can. You're great if you can get a historian along. But I am a theologian, and I think I can show... Uh, how the deep themes of the Reformation work and their significance both then and now. So that's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try and show how the Reformation is relevant, how it was relevant then, and how it speaks to us today. And I've got three headings uh, to talk about how the, the Reformation is relevant today. I mean, these in some sense are kind of randomly selected, but they're kind of three big issues, I think, which allow us to think about the, the connections between our world and the world of all those years ago. So the first, the first heading is the Reformation provides the answers to our divided society. So my, uh, my observation, I think it's many people's observation these days, is that, that Western societies have become angry and divided and increasingly polarised places. Uh, we can see signs of it on, uh, in social media. We can see signs of it in chat shows and podcasts in universities, in their protests, and on the streets sometimes. Thoughtful journalists speak of Western society being more divided than it's ever been for the last 150 years. There are deep divisions uh, between the way different parties, and uh, political parties and social uh, groups, think about each other and think about their own opinions. And the trends are worrying. Now, many people have grown cynical about the value of liberal freedoms, some are increasingly attracted to the idea of violence as a political instrument. I was uh, kind of fascinated and shocked uh, when I uh, visited a, a website that I kind of visit regularly and make comments on. It's kind of not a Christian website, but it's one where I kind of interact a bit with people. And I had my first comment uh, banned recently. And interestingly enough, it was a, a comment where I had challenged people who were promoting violence uh, against uh, right-wing extremists. Uh, the their theory was that you know if you see somebody who calls himself a, a fascist or a Nazi, you should just punch them. <laughs> uh, but this kind of talk and embrace of violence is increasing. Why do people feel like this? Uh, no doubt there are lots of reasons. I think there's a perception uh, from everybody that politics is tied up with corruption and vested interests. There's a frustration that comes from I think young people especially being told that our actions really can make a difference. Politicians and campaign organisers are always telling us that if we do this or that, vote for them, it'll make a big change and nothing ever changes. Uh, there's a, a sense in that things are getting desperate, that we're near some point of no return, whether that's the national debt or uh, same-sex marriage or climate change. The rhetoric is always, you know, we're at a tipping point, things are getting uh, past the point of no return, a sense of desperation. But one big reason is that we have fallen into warring tribes. Uh, these days, the way we live and talk, and I'm thinking here particularly of social media, of course, 
these patterns of relationship allow us to isolate ourselves from opinions that we don't like or don't agree with and spend more time talking to people that we do agree with or looking at opinion writers or news sources that reinforce our worldview. And the result of that is that we have less and less understanding and, and uh, understanding for and patience for people who think differently. And also, I think, less and less ability to cr- think critically of our own opinions, to challenge them. Other people's ideas seem prejudiced or ignorant and hateful. Or going one step further, people like me seem intelligent and well-meaning, but people on the other side seem kind of contemptible and wicked. <laughs> beneath, beneath contempt, beneath respect, not worth listening to. Now, for people who have read the Bible, of course, this sounds suspiciously familiar. Our tendency to build ourselves up and our, with our friends and to look down on other people Sounds just like that Pharisee in the parable of Jesus in Luke's gospel, doesn't it? Goes into the temple and spends his time praying, saying, I thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector over there. And then he goes and lists all his virtues. Uh, His way of thinking about himself is building himself up by putting the other guy down, comparing himself uh, to somebody who seems worse than him. Jesus' point, of course, in telling that parable is a warning If we only compare ourselves to other people, uh, we'll never know the truth about how sinful we are and we'll never come to God with the right attitude. If we want to know the truth about ourselves, we need to compare ourselves not to other people, but to him. So, how does that work with the world of the Reformation? Well, in the world of the Reformation, this way of dividing up the world was deeply entrenched. Uh, There were, in the medieval Christian world, really bad sinners, people who did mortal sins, uh, notorious sins. That was always a bit vaguely defined. Uh, And they were going to hell. And there were other Christians who just kind of did uh, not-so-bad sins, venial sins they were called, and they weren't too bad. Uh, If you died with a venial sin on your slate, on your ledger, you would go to purgatory to kind of pay off your debts for a few years, get cleaned up before you went on to heaven. If you died, though, with a mortal sin uh, on your conscience before having, uh, gotten a, having uh, had it specially uh, forgiven and you needed a special uh, dispensation from the church to get the mortal sin kind of wiped out, then you would go to hell. So if you walking down the street, commit a mortal sin, get hit by a wagon or horse or something like that, you're in hell. So there are these ways of dividing up the world. Bad sinners, not so bad sinners. That was one kind of division. Another division was between educated and ignorant people. So there were the clergy and the university educated elite and they could speak Latin and they they were allowed to read the Bible. They could read the Bible and have, uh, you know, educated discussions about it. It was all very in-house. And then there were the ordinary people, peasants, farmers, tradespeople, uh, and they, they couldn't speak Latin, of course, so they just kind of had to listen to the educated people. They had to do what they were told, believe what they were told, uh, and they were kept pretty much in the dark. Their way of relating to God was through the church, through the priests, by going to church and seeing the priest uh, do the magic of the mass. Uh, by the way, did you know that uh, you heard the expression hocus pocus? 
that comes from the Latin mass, hoc est corpus mei, here is my body. <laughs> it got turned into a magic spell. Uh, so the, the common people uh, didn't really know what was going on. They, were, they could look up, sure, and see the pictures, the scenes from the Bible stories in the, uh, the stained glass windows of the cathedrals. But that was, the theory was that was about as much as they could handle. Uh, you needed education, you needed Latin, you needed to be part of the in crowd to have a right to speak about God and read the Bible for yourself. So there was another great division. But the Reformation took a bulldozer to those two dividing walls. How so? Well, first it said that the division between serious and mortal, that is serious and mortal sin and ordinary sin was completely bogus. All sin, they said, is unacceptable to a truly holy God. Our attempts to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other sinners is like one prisoner looking at the other prisoner in the cell next door and saying, he's a bad guy, I'm okay because I've only killed one guy and he's killed five. It doesn't work that way. That's not how we find out uh, our objective uh, morality, our righteousness before God. So Luther says, we must reject those very ancient and deep-rooted errors by which in monastic fashion we speak of some people as holy. He gives a, a list of Jerome and Paul and Peter and so on. He says, in themselves, they are sinners and only God is holy. There is nothing holy Nothing good in man, as the psalm says. God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men. There is none that does good, not, no, not one. Therefore, let us keep quiet about holiness and holy people. Everything that is ours is evil before God. So the reformers insisted that there are no good people before God. None of us uh, is righteous in God's eyes, not compared to him. The only hope any of us have uh, of being right with God comes from Jesus, who offers to take responsibility for our sins, to pay for them himself, and in turn to give us his righteousness. The 39 Articles uh, of the Anglican Church, you might not know that the, the, the Anglican Church uh, has a reformed uh, confession, but it does. Uh, in Articles 10 and 11 it says, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good, uh, good works pleasant and acceptable to God. He says, we are, they, they say, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and full, very full of comfort. So the Reformation tore down the wall between good people, in, quote, in quotes, and bad people. It said we are all bad, as the scripture says. We need to put our trust in Jesus. We don't get to demonize other people and build ourselves up. But the Reformation also tore down the wall between the wise and the foolish. So whereas the Catholic Church had a very high opinion of its own scholars and its ability to reason, 
The reformers followed the Apostle Paul, who said that uh, human wisdom just can't be trusted that much. It keeps getting derailed by sin. You might recall what Paul says in the the first chapter of Romans. He talks about uh, how people in their pride thought themselves wise, but God handed them over to the foolishness of their rebellion against him, and they became fools, even as they thought themselves wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, in some ways, this is a very uh, modern insight of the Reformers, uh, to kind of be talking like that, be looking back to the Bible, actually. But uh, in the 20th century, uh, postmodern theory uh, was very interested in the way that vested interests, kind of corporate or political uh, power, would like to kind of skew arguments and um, uh, make cases that were biased and supported their own power. Uh, More recently, psychological studies have noticed similar problems more generally uh, when it comes to our ability to change minds. We have have difficulty assessing arguments correctly. We come to arguments and truth with a bias. We always want to have our prejudices confirmed. It's hard for us to change our minds. Uh, the, the, uh, researchers even talk about a backfire effect that happens when we're presented with good evidence that contradicts what we believe. Often the effect is that we dig in deeper to what we believe rather than changing our minds. Uh, if you've uh, had sharp disagreement with um, somebody recently, you might kind of, uh, kind of think that you've seen that in action. Uh, maybe they would too. Uh, but uh, it happens. Well, the Bible, of course, was there first and the reformers took their cue from it. They said that we all operate with hidden agendas, especially when it comes to God. Uh, None of us want to admit that we're sinners. That's one hidden agenda. We don't want to admit our sin. And secondly, we don't want God telling us what to do. And we will find all kinds of ways to avoid those truths. So we'll mask our sin with religion, We'll create laws that allow us to get, uh, get around uh, obeying God in a painful or costly way and, and let us do what we want to do. Or we'll, we'll provide excuses that we'll patch up the job and say, I can sin and it'll still be all right. But the reformers said, uh, these are excuses. We need God to show us the truth about ourselves. We ourselves are unreliable guides to our own righteousness. We can see in ourselves, we can see in those around us, the degree to which uh, our minds and biases are continually corrupting the truth as it reaches us and reaches our hearts and minds. We need God to change us. Our only hope is that God will speak a true word to us, the Bible, speaking about Jesus, but not just that, not just a a true written word for us, but we need God to send his Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us so that we see the truth. We need an external uh, revelation from God that can be trusted and we need an internal illumination from God by his spirit. So John Calvin writes in his uh, Institutes, Our mind has such an inclination to vanity that it can never cleave fast to the truth of God. And it has such a dullness that it is always blind to the light of God's truth. 
Accordingly, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the word can do nothing. Faith is as much higher than human understanding, a singular gift of God, both in that the mind of man is so purged as to be able to taste the truth of God and in that his heart is established therein. So for the reformers, the real hope for knowing the truth wasn't in our being intelligent, but in God revealing himself to us, first through his word, the Bible, and second through his spirit in our hearts so that we could understand the Bible truly. So once again, you see, this this put everybody on the same level. Uh, And it made sense that everybody should have the same access access to the Bible too which is why the, the reformers went to such great lengths to translate the Bible into ordinary languages. That's why reformed countries uh, tried to get everybody reading. Uh, universal literacy, free education, uh, very common and really uh, uh, legacies of the Reformation. But the main point is this. Because the Reformation was honest about human nature and put its hope in God's mercy... It still has great things to say to our society, great things to say to any society where there is division, where we judge each other, where we divide between the good and the bad, the foolish and the wise, uh, where we have trouble uh, acknowledging our own problems, our own uh, errors, uh, and are very aware of those that we disagree with. We We are all made foolish by our sin. We are all in, des- in desperate need uh, of, of God's help to save us from ourselves. So that's the first point. The second is that the Reformation shows us the answer to our discontent. What, are, what do I mean there? I mean that modern times are strangely stressful and unexpectedly stressful, in fact. Uh, we live in the richest and healthiest society of all time, historically. We have astonishing technology at our fingertips. We have amazing freedom of movement. We have great social protections and benefits. Uh, And yet, despite all these outward blessings, many of us feel like our lives are missing something. Uh, We feel like our lives aren't what they should be. We worry that we're not, not living up to our own potential. We feel like nobody really knows and appreciates us for who we are. Uh, We worry we're missing out and everybody else uh, is having a better time than we are. Rates of depression and anxiety uh, seem to be continually trending upwards in Western society. So we cast about, of course, for keys to unlock our happiness. And, and of course, we have the traditional um, things. We, We try to have enough money to retire well and be able to enjoy a good holidays or um, good experiences. We we hope for the best for our families. we hope for a happy home life. Uh, but we also, I think, as time goes on, uh, find ourselves, or people in our society find themselves, turning to more and desperate uh, s- solutions. Uh, so some people try to find uh, a better life through breakthrough successes of fame and fortune. Uh, whether that's, again, in work or sport or the creative arts. Other people turn inward. This is a very modern thing, I think. Turn inward hoping to find the source of their distress and discontent uh, in trying to re-understand their gender or their sexuality or thinking more deeply about their racial background or something like that. 
Perhaps if, if we could just know ourselves and begin to live out who we really are, that, would, that feeling of discontent and disquiet would go away. Well, what does the Reformation have to say about things like that? Well, not much, we might think. The Reformation was born in a very different age from ours, an age of sickness and great poverty, an age where there was very little freedom of movement, uh, very, very little freedom to choose your profession or your life or change the way you'd been brought up. You basically did what your parents did. And nonetheless, there are some basic similarities. Uh, just as we are often encouraged to look inwards to ourselves, to find what, out what we should do, pursue your passion, live out who you really are, try to bring your outside world into alignment with your inside world and your deep desires, well, so the medieval world encouraged people to look in as well. They were encouraged to look into themselves to know what God expected of them. The great catch cry of, the, of medieval Catholicism was this, God will not deny grace to anyone who does what lies within them. That means if you're an ordinary person, you just kind of try and be good in an ordinary way. Do your best. Follow your conscience. If you're a bit of a saint, well, you probably have to try a bit harder. You know, you... You have to give a bit more money. You have to be a bit more generous. You have to, a bit more is expected of you. Do what is within you. You know, follow your conscience uh, and God will take care of the rest. That was a kind of baseline, of course, uh, expectation for people. It, it sounds like a bit of a, uh, a low bar and it was. But there were other options as well. If you wanted to do more than just avoid hell, if you wanted to have a, a good kind of spiritual life, a richer and a more important and significant life, then you would go into the church. That was where your life would have spiritual meaning. You wouldn't simply be just li be living a secular life. You'd be living a life for God. You'd be living a life that really mattered. That was the higher, higher bar. So this was, again, we can see those divisions uh, creeping in again. Uh, but, of course, there were big problems uh, with this medieval approach. First, how could you really know whether you had done what was in you? Surely uh, we can all always do more. Have any of us uh, ever done, uh, completely obeyed our, even our own conscience, let alone God's perfect standards? Surely we can think of endless things we should have done in the past but failed to do. Where does that leave us with God? If God wants me to do what is in me and I can think of things I didn't do, how do I even know that I've thought of them all and asked God for forgiveness? In fact, this was the problem for Martin Luther. He joined the church, you see, to commit himself to God. But the more he tried to serve God, the more he noticed his own failures. And so he would go to confession to ask for forgiveness for some other sin that he'd uh, remembered that he'd committed. But almost before he was out the door, having finished confession, he'd remember something else and would go back. In fact, uh, he, he caused so much trouble to his confessor, Staupitz, that in the end Staupitz says, stop confessing, just try to love God. You're doing it too much. You're too introspective, too neurotic. Just try to love God. 
But how could Luther love God? Love God, he says, I I hated God. Here was God asking me to do what's in me and I, I can't do it. Although I was an impeccable monk, he says, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a righteous, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. He felt continually judged because he knew that he was not doing uh, what uh, what God told him to do and he didn't know how to. Well, the breakthrough, of course, for Luther was to realise that the answer wasn't in his heart or in his religious piety, but only in the service and sacrifice of Jesus. There was no other hope. Although he, Luther, could never do enough or be enough, Jesus would share his goodness with him. And Jesus would take Luther's sins. For Luther, in other words, and this is true of all the great reformers, this is the the heart of Reformation theology, the key to life was putting your trust in Jesus and letting him look after you. And if you were joined to him by faith, this is not something we talk about too much today, we talk about substitution, we talk about Jesus dying for us, yes, and those are all true, but the reformers and, and Luther talked about being joined to Jesus by faith and by the Spirit. If we are joined to Jesus and we receive all that is his and he takes all that is ours. Listen to how Luther puts it. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Here, this rich and divine bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast of as her own and which she can confidently display along her sins in the face of death and hell. What a powerful image. Our souls are like a prostitute married to Christ, the the innocent, pure and holy prince. He takes our sins and gives us his righteousness. Now the response of the Catholic Church back then uh, was that, uh, and it's still the same in many cases, is that if you think like that, If you say it's all about Jesus, if you put all your trust in Jesus and say he's going to do it all for you, uh, then that will be a license for people just to go off and live however they want. They'll sign up with Jesus and say, Jesus will forgive my sins. Fantastic. I'm just going to live however. But the reformers said it works the opposite way, actually. If you really understand the life that Jesus is offering you, not just to wipe away the sins from your ledger, but to live a new life with him that comes from him, Uh, then suddenly you will see opportunities to live that life everywhere. Everything will become part of that life. Every aspect 
of your existence will become part of that life, caught up in the love of Jesus and the life of Jesus. You don't have to go anywhere special or join some religious order. Every walk of life can be equally worthy and spiritual, in fact. So this was another great revolution in the way the reformers thought about life. It broke down this great divide between the secular, ordinary kind of peasant life uh, that kind of might get you into heaven still, but nothing special, and the religious, spiritual life. No, because everybody has access uh, to a perfect relationship with God through Jesus, then everybody who has that relationship with Jesus uh, can live an equally spiritual life. You can serve God wherever you are. All of life can be lived quorum dea, underneath the eye of God, before God. Luther says then, it looks like a great thing when a monk renounces everything and goes into a cloister or carries on a life of asceticism, fasts and watches and praying and so on. On the other hand, it looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, Even such a small work must be praised as a service to God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. Now, what he's saying is, if you, instead of trying to work, do spiritual things to make yourself right with God, you trust in God and already have the relationship that Jesus gives you, then all these acts, all these parts of your life, now become opportunities to serve and obey God. They become spiritual actions. Calvin says the same thing, warning us not to be dissatisfied with our lives. Uh, Reflecting, I guess, what Paul says in Romans 8 about, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God when we belong to Jesus. Every part of our existence and experience is an expression of his love. He says, God has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, He has named these various kinds of livings uh, callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him. A man of obscure station will lead a private life ungrudgingly so as not to leave the rank in which he has been placed by God. Now, Calvin, when he's pushed on this, doesn't this is, you know, I'm not saying that you can't kind of change your job or something like that any more than Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7, which is really what he's quoting from there. But what he is saying is that we should understand that God loves us if we have our trust in Jesus. And every part of our life is an opportunity given by him to serve him. We shouldn't just kind of be continually searching around for the true life, the real place to live, uh, which is what our society does. We are restless all the time. For, For the reformers, the answer to our dissatisfaction is to know Jesus. He's the one who can transform every kind of life into something glorious and spiritual. Uh, By looking to him, we can discover a new new identity, one that goes far beyond gender or sexuality or race. By joining up with him, we receive a life of free forgiveness and rich blessing. Listen to how the, the Puritan Richard Sibbs puts it in his description of Christ. Of course, the Puritans are influenced by Calvin very heavily, uh, but this is a classic Uh, description, I think, of the way they thought of what it means to live a life joined to Jesus. 
Uh, he's, he's expressing the same thing that, Paul, that, uh, that Luther describes in terms of that marriage analogy, in terms of the Holy Spirit. That's a more classic Reformed uh, theology, but have a listen. Christ is a son, Sibs says. The Spirit tells us we are sons. Christ is an heir. The Spirit tells us we are heirs with Christ. Christ is the King of heaven and earth. The Spirit, he's talking about the Bible here, of course, the, the Spirit through the Bible, tells us that we are kings, that his riches are ours. Thus we have grace for grace, both favour and grace in us, and privileges issuing from grace. We have all as they are in Christ. In other words, we have everything Christ has. The grace and sanctification we have is not in our own keeping. The spring is from Christ. All treasure is hid in Christ for us. What a comfort this is in anything we lack. So the, clue, the, the key to satisfaction, to a rich life, is Jesus, according to the Reformers. And there's our second point. Thirdly, the Reformation answers our longing for transcendence. What do I mean by that? When people lose contact with God, they often try to find out what, what they're missing in the lower heavens. So uh, sometimes that means worshipping gods uh, or demons. Sometimes that means uh, trying to get in touch with the spirits of the dead. The kind of spiritual realm, we can't get to God, we'll content with the spiritual, lower spiritual realms or something. In recent years, I think our society has tried to slake its spiritual thirst uh, through fantasies. Fantasies of myth and magic and other worlds. You only have to go to the bookshops these days and just see wall-to-wall uh, bookshelves full of uh, uh, vampire romance and um, boy wizards and uh, uh, science fiction, uh, science fiction fantasy, uh, hybrid fantasy science fiction, uh, all kinds of myth and magic. You go to the movies, of course, uh, and we have... Uh, Superheroes who are kind of demigods and increasingly actually are gods. Think of uh, uh, Wonder Woman who turns out to be a demigod. and uh, We have uh, the Norse gods popping up in the Marvel universe and uh, all this kind of myth and fantasy, kind of just a flood that seems to be increasing exponentially as time goes on. Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki in the Thor and Avenger movies, uh, says... He explicitly says that what we have with these movies uh, is a faithless modern mythology for our increasingly secular society. I think he's right, actually. Uh, these movies are itching a scratch, you're trying to scratch an itch uh, for transcendence, for contact with heaven. Now, I'm not saying that uh, fiction like this is wrong. Indeed, if we trace it back historically, we would find Christian writers such as uh, J.R. Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis, uh, and they would say that, that myths and fairy tales are supposed to help us or to remind us and help us recover a taste uh, for the world as it really is. We live in a world of science and secularism, a world on the level, uh, a world of mortality and, and um, uh, a pedestrian world. But the world as it really is, is haunted by the Spirit of God. It's overshadowed by the realm of heaven. And it's full of wonder and beauty. Every now and then we notice it. 
Myths, myths and fairy tales, according to these guys, are supposed to remind us of that. They're meant to reawaken us to the world as it actually is. Yet it's also clear, I think, that fantasy fiction can't satisfy the cravings that produce it for our society. In the end, this huge uh, fashion that we have now will either finish and people will move on to something else, or the next logical thing is that people will try real magic and real paganism uh, to try and, uh, again, get what the fiction won't give them. But that won't work either, of course. Our hearts are made for God alone, as, as Augustine says. Now, the reason why this is relevant to the Reformation is because the Reformation also arose in a time of myths. Without a clear idea of how to gain access to a holy God, medieval Christians turned their eyes to the inferior realms. They imagined saints and angels to pray to, stages of purgatory and heaven to ascend through, states of mind and meditation to aspire to. If you really want to see the medieval world at its most glorious and vivid hue, try reading Dante's Divine Comedy, which takes a tour through hell and then purgatory and heaven. It's full of myths, sometimes Greek and Roman myths. Uh, But there are angels and demons and levels of glory. But in the end, Dante never really gets a proper view of God. Only in the final page does he get a glimpse of something like a kind of rainbow with a, a human figure in it. Words fail him, but that's as close as he gets. Medieval Christians, for them, God seemed very far off. And they were scared of God. They welcomed these intermediate layers of reality. They were scared of Jesus, too. Even Bernard of Clairvaux, one of the great medieval saints, uh, a champion of simple Christian piety and faith and very popular with the reformers. They always thought of him as one of the good guys. Uh, even Bernard of Clairvaux had problems uh, uh, thinking of Jesus or going directly to Jesus. His advice is, but to, to Christians who are worried about the state of their souls and scared, he says, perhaps you fear in Christ the divine majesty because although he became a man, he remained nevertheless God. If you want to have someone who pleads for you with him, then turn to Mary. So Mary, you see, and saints like her would give a kind of more gentle introduction to God. They could be mediators with God. They were scared to go directly to God, even to Jesus. How unlike the Bible that is. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a merciful high priest. And that because of his work on the cross, we can draw near to God into the most holy place of heaven itself uh, with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith. But Bernard suggests we should go to someone more approachable. Paul writes to Timothy that there is one mediator between God and man, but Bernard points to someone else. But the reformers uh, put it differently. Have a look at what the, um, or listen to what the, the Belgic Confession says. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. But this mediator, whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not to terrify us by his greatness so that we have to look for another one, according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. 
We don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to look to the lower heavens. We can go straight to the top. There is our Lord Jesus and priest uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. We bypass all those middle levels. So for the reformers, Jesus does everything to clear the way to, uh, and bring us to God. There's no need for priests or penance or purgatory or special buildings uh, or saints in heaven. None of those can add anything to Jesus' work, nor will they do us any good if we don't have Jesus. They just get in the way. So there are the three things the Reformation can help us with today. The Reformation provides the answers to our divided society. The Reformation shows us the answer to our discontent. And the Reformation answers our longing for transcendence. And I hope you can see that in each case, the, the real uh, our answer is the same. It's the gospel of Jesus. Uh, it's the gospel that tells us to stop judging each other and realise that we ourselves need God's mercy to save us from our sin and foolishness. It's the gospel of Jesus that teaches us to look away from ourselves and our circumstances to find true life in Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus that assures us that the real answer to our longings is Jesus himself who opens the way into heaven and gives us a place in his kingdom. So the Reformation is just as relevant as it was 500 years ago. It's relevant because our needs are still the same. We need a way back to God who loves us and forgives us. We need new life in Christ. The manifestations of our need might be different from, time, from generation to generation, but the same basic need is always there. The glory of the Reformation is that it didn't do anything new, but simply pointed back to Jesus. Jesus, who was as relevant in 2017 as he was in 1517, or 117 for that matter. Here's a timeless note to finish with from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a, hair of my, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Um, just give a round of applause for Andrew. It'd be great. Um, so I hope your souls were refreshed. Mine certainly was. Um, we're going to have a bit of question time. Yeah, question time. So I'm going to hand this microphone to Paul, who's going to be my running around man. Um, thanks, Paul, for volunteering. Um, so if you have a question, please put your hand up and then wait for the microphone because uh, we want to record what your question is. Thanks. Um, that's from the Heidelberg Catechism. Yeah. 
you have a view on which of the reformers were the most influential? Uh, that's a good question. Well, it's obviously Luther or Calvin. <laughs> uh, uh, they're probably uh, diff- influential in different ways. So without, without Luther, we probably wouldn't ha- have had Calvin, for example. Or things would have been different. Uh, uh, Calvin is probably the more influential intellectually in the long run, uh, but it's it's Luther's passion and personality that really kind of is the kind of firecracker that kind of starts the Reformation. Uh, And he's a great person to you know read and think about and encounter because of that, because he's such an impressive, passionate kind of person for the gospel. Calvin's a, probably a greater mind, but um, you know, they're different. Mm. I'm sure if you'll know how this one works. I'm just thinking um, when everything was nailed to the wall, so to, to, so to speak, and people started to find out about the Bible and were able to read it for themselves and, and suddenly the Catholic Church is in a little bit of trouble, of course. Mm. Do we, are there signs of uh, people within the Catholic Church, even up high, who actually turned and repented where they were and, and turned to Christ? Do we, do we have any um, things on that or not really? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I mean think about where, where the Reformed ministers came from. Um, uh, yeah, the, the early ministers of the Reformation are coming from their converted priests and so on, and monks. Now, I think your question, though, is... Um, are there people who are converted higher up in the hierarchy, are you? Yeah, now, now that's a tricky question. Because you, you, you have to remember, of course, that uh, everybody at the beginning, including Luther, wants not to kind of create a new church and to split the, the Catholic Church. They want to reform the Catholic Church. And you have to also remember that at the start of the Reformation, a lot of the ideas... Uh, that Luther, uh, that a lot of the kind of um, things that we now see as set in stone with Catholicism weren't set down or codified in the way that they are now. That is, the Council of Trent, in reaction to the Reformation, uh, stated categorically that it rejected a lot of these things, rejected you know, salvation by faith alone, by grace alone. Uh, so you could uh, you could be a Catholic and, uh, in the hierarchy and and be a faithful believer and think you know well yeah these guys are saying some good things we don't need to kind of split the church uh, and that's what I already believe and there are people who even today you think you read them and think uh, I think of one cardinal in particular who's dead now but um, uh, you think it, that kind of sounds like Reformation theology. And they were, the reformers were always clear about that. Yes, we certainly insist that there are true believers in the church. And even at the Council of Trent, you know, there's a big fight that goes on for a few days about, um, you know, can anybody hope to stand in their own righteousness before God on the day of judgment? And quite a few people said, no, you, nobody can. But other guys said, oh, yes, I can. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, there are signs of real faith in, even in the Council of Trent, though it didn't win the day, unfortunately. I don't know what happened to those guys later on. But yeah, it's, it's, co- it's very complicated and there's all kinds of things going on. 
happy to fill the silences. Um, <laughs> I, I thought your last point was really interesting, how you talked about people's, like, inner, um, inner desire for transcendence, or mm. I can't remember exactly the words you used, but I think that seemed interesting to me because we often think of, like, the Melbourne kind of culture and Australian culture as almost the opposite in having um, no real sense of any desire for transcendence but being quite content in who they are, where they are right here. Mm. <laughs> um, which is interesting then. Um, I don't know if you see the Reformation speaking to that mentality um, or whether you just see that as people who are just deeply suppressing an inner desire for transcendence um, because the culture that, of the day, a lot of people you might think just... Not really in touch with that at all. They probably, you know, day to day, they wouldn't acknowledge having any desire for transcendence. Almost quite the opposite. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think. Well, I guess what I guess what um, the Catholic Church tended to do was compartmentalise um, religion and secular life. I mean, we think about that with the you know you've got the ordinary people who aren't even really part of the church, but um, so they just. The magic is kind of kept over here. The church looks after that. Most people just kind of carry on and, you know, they'll pay a bit of money to the church for a mass or something like that to get their sins forgiven. They've departmentalised it. So, yes, they want, they want transcendence. They want contact with, with heaven, but they, they don't really believe it can happen. So they pray to saints and they let the church do it and so on. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's kind of a divided thinking, isn't it? And I'm suggesting that's what we have here too. Yes, we are on one level very ordinary and secular, but somebody's buying those books and somebody's going to see those movies. Lots of people, it seems. In other words, uh, we might not take it that seriously, but we take it enough seriously to kind of like them. Like, they're obviously feeding some kind of hunger, those, all that kind of stuff that's being published and produced. Um, now, whether that, what happens next is the interesting question, I guess. You know, will, will people just drift back to another kind of secularism and try and forget about that or move to another fashion that will do something similar? Or will, or will paganism come back? Uh, I was reading an article the other day that was suggesting, yes, that amongst millennials uh, there's more and more interest in the occult and uh, astrology and all that kind of stuff, not just a kind of fantasy Harry Potter kind of interest, but... Uh, really wanting to take it seriously. That's what I would expect, actually. It's one of the things I'd expect. Because um, the, the, the fiction won't do it in the end, if, if that's what we're, we're wanting. Yeah, no, but you get some Catholics uh, who would say, you know, that the Reformation was good for us all, and truthfully, it was in the sense that the re you wonder whether uh, with Vatican II, the Catholics encouraged their people to read the Bible in ordinary language. You know, <laughs> the very fact that the, the Bible is uh, that Catholics now are able to read in languages other than Latin—that's uh, something the Reformation made happen. Uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, some, in some ways, the Catholic Church reacted badly and went further into confusion. But there have been also some positive uh, things as well. The Catholic Church is a funny thing. It's like, um, my analogy for it is it's like 
you know, a hoarder's house. And if you go to a hoarder's house, there's all kind of treasures all mixed in with kind of rubbish, you know. There's a Leonardo da Vinci stacked under a whole bunch of uh, women's weeklies or something like that. Or, uh, you know, Stradivarius violin uh, sitting in a pile of uh, Happy Meals or something. Uh, and, you know, most people are just confused about, every, about what's going on. Uh, but some people can actually see the treasures <laughs> and manage to kind of live amongst the, amongst the rubbish. Have you seen the Catholic Church shift in any way that would be, like, from what I've seen from people I've spoken to who've come out of the Catholic Church, um, Catholic colleges, that sort of thing, they've never heard anything of mm. salvation by grace. And it was only two nights ago, two trick-or-treaters turn up at our door and um, two teenage girls both go to Mount Liddell Mercy College. I shared the gospel with them. That was the story they had to get before they got the, trick, uh, the treat. Um, and they chose the story. So they got the gospel, um, the pocket gospel I shared with them. And they sh- I shared the gospel and they, they'd never heard it. They were just amazed. They were just stood there dumbfounded. They're like, what a beautiful story. I've, n- I've never heard it. We go to a Catholic college. Wow. We've never heard it taught like that before. Mm. Have they not shifted in any way? Have they not? Have they not teach it? I mean, what do they teach other than yeah. what the Bible says? The Catholic just... is a very the Catholic Church is a very big organisation with lots of different flavours. I think is the answer, and the Australian flavour is different from the American flavour, and there are different flavours in America. And but what what I think one basic thing to to think is what you have in the Catholic Church often is an oscillation or a variation between head and heart. So if you think about the last Pope. Uh, he was a, a man of orthodox, clear orthodox theology. Uh, and uh, he would agree with a lot of us, with us on a, a very great many points. Uh, he was a man of um, profound thought. Uh, with his own Catholic, he would believe all the Catholic stuff, you know. Uh, but he'd be a, a, um, a conservative theologically. On the other hand, our current Pope our Pope, you know, the Pope, uh, Pope Francis, he's, he represents the other kind of a wing of the Catholic Church, the heart wing, which is often kind of very fuzzy about the gospel. Uh, well, they're both fuzzy about the gospel, but it's a different kind of fuzziness. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, insti- what's that? Yeah, warm fuzzy, yeah. And a lot of the, the Catholic institutions in Australia, I suspect, would reflect his emphasis so big on doing good, trying to do good, um, big on kind of social implications of the gospel, of being a Christian, uh, not so clear about what the, the gospel is, uh, not so clear about theology at all, actually. So that's a pretty vague answer, but I'm not an expert on the, on the Catholic Church, really. Uh, but I think that's what you find. I mean, even 20 years ago, I remember sharing the gospel with a man who's a friend of us, a family, and, uh, and, and I asked him about, you know, if... How do you know when you're going to die? Yeah, when you die, if you're actually going to go to heaven or not? Do you have any faith that he goes? Well, none of us know. And I said, Why is that? And he goes, We don't know if we've done enough good works or not. Yeah. So uh, even back then, they were just it was just totally on their works. And look at all the wonderful things the Catholic Church. He's seen all that, you know, and he's telling me. I'm like, Really? <laughs> yeah. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Because the Catholic Church has the idea that Jesus died for our sins. Has the idea that there's no righteousness in ourselves, in one sense. And yet it, it finds a way to smuggle in all these other things that make it sound like 
I get to heaven by Jesus paying for my sins and by avoiding certain bad sins. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's very confusing, I think. Got like um, probably two questions. Mm. One's the last one's more of a practical one, just to kind of um, help us to keep going forward from here. The first question, though, is um, being in the theological sort of world and writing and articles and so on. Um, sometimes I find that world's probably a few years ahead in regards to what some of the battles that are going to happen um, for evangelical churches and churches that believe in the gospel. What do you kind of see that's happening right now? Just for those of us, you know, as we're sort of talking about other things we might not yeah. know of. Um, I usually have an answer to that, but it's not on the top of my head at the moment. Okay. Um, I think the drift or the danger for, uh, for evangelicals today is that we always kind of drift away to thinking about the implications of the gospel rather than the gospel itself. And our thoughts are always moving away from Jesus back to ourselves. Uh, so I'm thinking about, thinking about the headings from tonight, you know. Well, Christians too, we get caught up in that kind of polarisation. We're tempted to kind of uh, take sides too much, I think, in political discussions. Um, which is not to say we're not allowed to have opinions, but uh, we put too much uh, emphasis, maybe, on uh, on those kind of things. Uh, and the more we do that, the more we we forget that the real an- the only real answer to our society's problems is the gospel. Mm. Uh, we need to keep remembering that, but it's a danger for us that we forget it. Um, we, I think, I mean, I speak for myself, I know I'm contem- continually tempted to think that true living and satisfaction is found in doing something different um, rather than just Jesus and forgetting the kind of riches that we have in him. That's, that's true, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, and the, the other one as well. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I mean, I... I it's probably much better answer, but I can't think off the top of my head. Sorry, Shabu. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, and then final question, just from here, to kind of uh, help us both equip ourselves and, and in regards to some of the sort of reformation stuff, any suggestions where we could begin bite-size at least? Uh, what I would do, one of the things that I found really helpful in kind of preparing for this and some other talks I did was listening to, uh, on YouTube, you can listen to Carl Truman's uh, series on the Reformation, on Martin Luther. Uh, that's a great place to begin. You just kind of, it's free. Uh, so it's like 10, a t- series of 10 hour-long talks or something like that, and he's very entertaining, really easy to listen to. So that would be a good place to go. Okay. Um, really helpful introduction to the Reformation. Okay, awesome. Um, and finally, this is more just to put it out there. Um, Andrew's actually written two books, or probably more than two <laughs> books. Uh, one's called In the Light of the Sun, which he's written that you can uh, get from most places. And the other one I'm a bit more curious about, you might need to explain a little bit, Andrew, uh, is the Tales of the Pirate Gospel. Yeah, that's Mark's Gospel uh, translated into pirate. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so uh, I would encourage you to chat. You can chat to Andrew about it afterwards. And the other thing is also, if you just um, Google Australia, um, Australian Gospel Coalition uh, website, you can actually find a bunch of articles that Andrew's written uh, on there. Um, so, yeah. So thanks, Andrew. Pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody.